Well, hello, Christ Chapel. Great to see you. Hello to all of you uh, who are worshiping with us either at uh, one of our campuses, at our internet campus, Converge, West Campus, South Campus, what's up? Glad you decided to join us. Uh, I'm excited to open God's word with you. So if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're gonna be in verses 35 to 45, Mark chapter 10. But while you turn there, just wanna tell you a couple things. First, wanted to let you know that we are fully aware of all the things going on with COVID right now. We are watching the news, we're listening to medical professionals, we're listening to our city and state officials, of course. I think God has been with us and has been leading our elder board as they've made decisions. I just want you to know we're fully aware of that. We are actually making some sacrifices even as a staff so that we don't compromise Sunday worship. That's certainly important for us as a body, and so we are fully aware of all those things. We will continue to communicate with you if there are any updates, but just wanted to let you know that we're aware of those things. Second, would like to let you know, many of you, at the end of the year, you look for opportunities to give where God can have a great, great impact. And so I wanted to let you know of some needs that we have as a Christ Chapel family. So this year, as far as end of year giving, we're gonna have a family focused, uh, the family focus that fits our vision this year for 2020 and 2021. And so first is uh, anything that you give to end of year giving is gonna go to one of these three categories. Uh, the first is nuclear families. We have a lot of community partners that support the nuclear family, specifically those who have needs during these holiday uh, times. And so uh, they'll go to support them. Uh, also, as far as nuclear families, there are many children that because they're not going back to school in person who are missing out on some of those school lunch programs that are on free or reduced lunches, uh, we wanna be able to step in and provide for them some, some very tangible means of God's care. Uh, the second is to defend the faith. Uh, as you know, the, the faith is one in the battleground of the mind. Uh, obviously by God's spirit, but we want to defend our faith. And that begins in the battlefield of the mind with our students. And so one of the things that we wanna do is we wanna defend our faith with them by giving them and their parents some worldview training. So if you give, uh, you'll be giving to subsidize some worldview training that we're gonna have to bring in speakers and curriculum for them so that they get a biblical worldview to see all of the issues going on in our world today through a biblical lens. Uh, the other part about defending our faith is, uh, folks, we have to be on guard to defend our religious liberties. And here's why I say that, is because we are going to continue to preach the Bible. That is not going to change, but the opposition will. The opposition it will come against us and will not like that we are taking a biblical stance. So what we need to do is we need to build a war chest in that time that those attacks come. And so we need to defend our faith and religious liberties. And then the third one is just to extend the family of faith. And we need to extend the family of faith. God has given us some great opportunities. Uh, the first one is to extend the family of faith down there at the South Campus uh, in Johnson County. As you know, God provided 13 acres right there along I-35, and we're so grateful uh, for it. It's an incredible piece of property, so incredible that people have offered to buy it, and we're not selling it. Uh, God is gonna use that for his means, uh, but uh, we need to finish that. And so I told you, many of you are so generous during these COVID times that we're able to start 
phase one of that building, but that building still needs to be furnished. And so if you give part of your giving, end of your giving will go to the South Campus. And then the second one, to extend the family, and this is super exciting, and that is the church in the Middle East. Uh, we have been partners with this church in the Middle East, and they are ministering to not only Syrian refugees, but to a ton of countries that you would know of in the Middle East and in the Persian Gulf that are not Christ followers there, and they're sharing the gospel. God is moving in a mighty way to bring people to this fellowship, and they need a building. They are about 60% of the way done, but we need to help push that ball uh, across the goal line there and finish that project. So each of you were given an envelope that should have been in your sermon notes, and so what I'd like for you to do, all those categories that I just mentioned are on there. What I'd ask for you to do is take that envelope home. Take it home, put it in your Bible, put it in your purse, put it on your refrigerator, on your mirror, somewhere where you're gonna see it. And all I would ask you to do is pray and participate. Just pray and participate. My prayer is that we would all play a part in, the, in this end of year giving. Why? Because I want us to all celebrate together what God does through these different initiatives because God is going to do great things and I don't want to be on the other side of it and you saying, gosh, man, that is incredible. I wish I would have played a part. And so my goal, my prayer, is that all of us would participate in this end-of-year giving. So you can bring those gifts in. Obviously, anytime end-of-year, you can give uh, online uh, uh, and the receptacles outside your uh, venues. Uh, just I pray that we would all, all participate. Okay, in 2001, an author business guru, Jim Collins, wrote a book, Good to Great. You've probably heard of that. I mean, gosh, it's almost 20 years old now, which is hard to believe. But in this book, Good to Great, what Jim Collins was trying to do, he assessed a lot of different companies and tried to determine what made some companies good, but some companies great. How did they move from good to great? How did they get over that hump? He found many companies didn't. And one of the things that he found in his book, and I quote, he says, good is the enemy of great. One of the reasons why I found that some companies never went from good to great is because they were fine and settled on being good. They didn't aspire to be great. They didn't wanna be great. They were fine just going through the motions and doing the status quo, just being good. And that became the enemy of being great. You know, I know that's a secular lesson. I know that that is all business principles, and he's got a lot of other business principles in there that don't necessarily apply to the church. But what if I told you I think he's right in the spiritual realm that good is an enemy of great? What if I told you that God wanted you to be great? At first, some of you will flinch. You go back and you're like, oh, Cody, don't tell me to be, be great. God doesn't want me to be great. Yeah, he does. God wants you to be great. And too often, we settle for being good. We settle for being, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a, a good, I'm a decent follower of Christ. He doesn't want you to be a good, decent, settle, settled follower of Christ. He wants you to be a great follower of Christ. He, he wants you to go all out. He, he wants you to, to, to get over that hump of, uh, I'm, I'm good. You see, too often in our Christian lives, we just settle for being good. 
we make these arrangements with God of, God, I'll give you this much, but don't ask for that much. <laughs> I only wanna give you this. And we never make it to being great Christ followers because we settle for being good. God wants you to be great. See, the problem is, oftentimes we don't wanna be. But God wants you to be great. In fact, he even gives you a path to that greatness. But the path doesn't look like Jim Collins' path in good to great. It's not a business path. It, it, it has an entirely different trajectory. And that's what we're gonna look at today. What I wanna show you is, how do you become great in God's eyes? It looks different in the world, and I wanna describe that for you from Mark chapter 10. And then I wanna show you how to get there. It's a, it's a different way than any business book would tell you, but we're gonna look at all of that from an interaction that Jesus has with two of his disciples, James and John, in Mark chapter 10. So what I'd like to do is just read Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 34 uh, with you. So if you'll just follow along, we'll read it as a whole, and then we'll go back and break it down. So Mark chapter 10, verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that such a kind response? Like the fact that he entertains that, what a God we serve. Verse 37, and they said to him, well, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, oh, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him all together and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Because here's the clincher. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his word. So why on earth did Jesus come to this earth? James and John think that they know. They think that Jesus came to do for them whatever they want. Now when you first read that, you flinch. Just like when I told you that God wants you to be great. You flinch and you're like, how in the world could James and John ask Jesus this request? How do they even get this idea? Now, before we you know, pile on them as knuckleheads, let's think about the context and why they would even begin to ask this. Now, there's a parallel account with Mark chapter 10 that's in Matthew chapter 20. 
Now, what I wanna do is I wanna quickly go, you don't have to open to Matthew chapter 20, I'll walk you through this, but Matthew chapter 20, go back to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. And he says that anyone who wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. They must leave everything. It's, the, it's actually the, the conversation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler, where, where he says, hey, go sell all your possessions. The disciples hear Jesus tell this to this rich young man, and he says, hey, gosh, I can't sell everything. And the disciples go to Jesus, and they go, hey, Jesus, we heard you say that to be great, you gotta leave everything. That's what you told this young guy. Guess what? We've done that. And here's what Jesus tells him. He goes, I know you've done that. And so because you have done that, guess what? He says, you are going to reign with me on 12 thrones, in Matthew chapter 19, verse, 30, or verse 28, he says to, the, to his disciples, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, those who follow him will also sit on 12 thrones. So why would they ask for this throne? They've got this idea that if I follow Jesus, I'm gonna sit on this throne with him in his glory. They think that, that, is, that this is coming now. That's where they get this great expectation from. They expect that Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman government and he is going to establish his throne to rule and reign immediately. Not in the new world, that the new world is coming right now. And so they are going to jockey for position. It, it, they think they're going to the throne. So just like you're going to the car, you call shotgun, right? They're going to the throne and they're going shotgun right and left. We, th those are the spots we want. So that's where this great expectation comes from. But they also have another thing going for them. They have access to Jesus in an unparalleled way that none of the other disciples have. You see, what you might not know is, it, as James and John are described, as sons of Zebedee, they were not sons of Zebedee alone. They were also sons of Salome. Now, Salome was probably Mary's sister, and so, in, actually, in Matthew, it's actually Salome who goes to Jesus and asks this request of her two sons, James and John. Now, it probably originated with James and John, regardless of who asked, because Jesus addresses his response to the two sons of Zebedee. But these sons of Zebedee, who are also called the sons of thunder, they're mama's boys. Okay, Salome is the one who, who's going, and she's like, hey, let me work this relational angle. You know, I, I know your mama. I mean, you know, I'm kind of your aunt a little bit. You know, why don't you put your cousins on your right and your left? And so there's this unparalleled access. Also, don't forget, James and John are on the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Remember, he had three in his inner circle, James, John, and Peter, which meant they got to see things that no other disciples had seen. They got to see him do a couple of different healings that nobody ever saw. They went further into the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying in his distress than any of the other disciples did, but they also got to see something no other disciples got to see, and that was Jesus transfigured. Do you remember that? The, do you remember the transfiguration? where Jesus transfigures into this, this glorious uh, being, what he's probably like today, somewhat like that. And he appears with Moses and Elijah. He's in this kind of eternal state. 
I mean, if, they, if anybody has seen Jesus in his glory, they have seen him in his glory. That's how that text actually defines him. So when they say, we wanna sit on your right and left, they're getting it from the throne. When they say, when you're, and we wanna sit there in your glory, they've been there. That's where this unparalleled expectation comes from from these two guys. It's because they have unparalleled access to Jesus. So their idea of, hey, let's have this wonderful uh, you know, party where we all three sit together when we rule and reign is not that crazy, but greatness in God's eyes does not equate to glory on earth. Greatness in God's eyes does not equate to glory on earth. You see, when I first read that passage, you probably thought, how in the world could those guys ask? But now when you think about the unparalleled access that they have and therefore the expectations that come from that access, guess what? We're not all that different. We tell you all the time about how you have incredible access to God, that through Jesus Christ, you now have confidence to approach the throne of grace. You have this unparalleled access that nobody has had before, and you can go to him at any time. And because you have that access, you therefore have expectations. And some of those expectations are right. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is interceding for you constantly at the right hand of the Father. And so you go, oh my gosh, he's interceding for me. He's praying for me. Well, man, I should always pray. Absolutely, you should always pray. So you have unparalleled access, which leads to unparalleled and great expectations. But sometimes the expectations of what God is going to do for us here on this earth don't match up with his will. He has different expectations. We expect him that we, uh, of him that we are going to rule and reign right now. He's gonna overthrow all of our enemies. He's gonna overthrow uh, you know, the Roman government like he was going to for the disciples. And we're gonna sit and we're gonna rule in our lives. That's what he wants of us. That's, so therefore, that's what we're gonna ask. You see, as disciples, it's, it's, it's really hard, I understand this, to walk with Jesus and discern the difference between your own will and his will. You see, the greatest struggle in our Christian life is not discerning God's will, but it's disavowing our own. It's a great struggle, why? Because God in his grace has given us a wonderful relationship with God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit and we see God do great and amazing things in and around us. And so it sets our expectations sometimes way higher. And we think we know best than what God gives us or wants for us. He has a different plan for our lives. That's why we struggle. You see, the struggle, though, isn't knowing what God's will is. I think we know what God's will is for our life oftentimes. We often know what it means. We just don't like it. We would just rather have our own will. And that's why when, when Jesus' disciples asked him, how should we pray? What's in there? Not my will, but your will be done. Should be a constant prayer of us. That's the hard part, is discerning, God, is this your will or is this my will taking over? You see, because so often we don't think God knows what's best for our life. 
That's why, that's why we need to tell him. We need to inform him. You know, what time is it now? It's coming up on Christmas time. And you've heard this analogy before that we treat God like Santa Claus. That you just make your list and God, here's all the things I want you to do for me. It's kind of like James and John. In fact, I love how they approach it too. You know, they say, hey, promise us that you'll do for us whatever we ask of you. You know, I mean, it's like what, what your kids do to you. You know, it's like, dad, promise you're gonna say yes to what I'm about to ask you. You know, or I've, you know, you might've done this before with your spouse. You go, promise me you're not gonna get mad. You know, and you kind of wade in there and then, they, then you tell them you know, what you know they're already gonna be mad about. That's why you asked them in the first place. But it's this interesting request, but sometimes we treat God like Santa Claus where we just make this list. And here's the other part about that. Not just that we expect him to give us everything on our list, but remember, Santa doesn't know what you want. That's why you go sit on his lap. That's why you go tell him. Because he doesn't know what you need. He doesn't know what you want, but guess what? God's not Santa. He, he didn't come to this earth to fulfill your Amazon wish list. He knows what you need and he knows what you want too. And when those wants align with his will and your needs, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing that you walk in confidence that God has provided this for you. But he knows those things. Should you make those requests known to him? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely but you walk in trying to discern, God, your will, not my will. I don't, I don't wanna try to fulfill my will on this earth. You put me here to do your will, God. And that's what we seek. You see, greatness is not glory on this earth, which is what is on all of our Christmas lists. We want glory, we want comfort, we want recognition, we want respect, we want pride. We want all of those things like we would rule and reign our own kingdom here on earth. But Jesus didn't come to establish our kingdom. He came to establish his kingdom. That's why we struggle with trying to discern what is God's will and what's our own. But greatness in God's eyes doesn't come with a request, it comes with a cost. You see, greatness in God's eyes comes at a cost that many people don't consider. Many people don't consider the cost of greatness in God's eyes. Jesus tries to tell James and John what this cost is. Um, remember when they come and they say, you know, I wanna be on your right and your left? The person on the right was usually an heir. The person on the left was usually their most trusted advisor. Both coveted positions, obviously. And Jesus says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. And the, he says, can you drink the cup that I'm gonna drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm gonna be baptized. Oh, of course we can, sure. And then he goes on to explain that they will experience that. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Now, you gotta go back to Old Testament references. Cup always explain, is always a, a, a metaphor for suffering. And if you remember, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, where this inner circle goes, Jesus says, God, if it's your, can this cup pass from me? The, the, the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out on him at the cross, that he would have to drink in a sense. That's why he uses cup. Baptism, when you look at baptism, specifically in the Psalms, baptism there is I'm overwhelmed. It is I'm in over my head in sorrow and suffering. 
And remember, that's what baptism means. It means immersion, baptizo, to go all the way under. When you're in over your head, when you're overwhelmed with sorrow, that's what he's talking about. Can you take on this cup that I'm gonna drink and this baptism? Oh, of course we can. And he has an interesting response. He, he, all through here is an interesting response that he's entertaining this in the first place. But he doesn't say, no, you can't. What does he say? You're gonna experience it. He says, you're gonna go through that. You're gonna experience the baptism with which I'm baptized. You're gonna experience the cup as well. You see, you cannot follow Christ and forsake his path. You can't say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I just don't like that path. (laughs) I don't wanna go that way. If it's his will that we're seeking, then it's his way we'll follow. You can't follow him and forsake his way, and his way is going to involve a cost in this world. We're not gonna get the, the crown without the cross here. It's not gonna happen. And in fact, what we know about James and John's life is that they experience a lot of suffering for Christ. In fact, James is the first one, the first one of the disciples who was martyred and exiled for his faith. John or was executed for his faith. John was exiled for his faith. You remember exiled to the Isle of Patmos? I mean, they, they certainly experienced some suffering on behalf of them following Christ. We, we are, you, you can't say I follow him, I just don't wanna go that way. If you're gonna follow him, it's gonna come at a cost that many people don't consider. But if you wanna be great in God's eyes, here's my question for you. Is there a price that you're not willing to pay? Is there a price that you're not willing to pay? Is there a price where you say, God, I'll go this far, but not that far? Many of us have it if you really sit there and think of it. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't have a a if then. If it gets to this, then I bail. He said all the way. All the way for you and all the way for me. By the way, the only people we see in the New Testament who are at Jesus' right and left are the criminals on the cross. You don't know what you're asking for. But he provides a way to do it. He provides a path to follow him, to be great in his eyes, because greatness in God's eyes comes in a different path, and it's descending rather than ascending. Greatness in God's eyes comes from descending rather than ascending. It's a different path than anything in this world. James and John thought they knew what it was, that they would ascend to the throne to sit next to Jesus, to have glory and comfort and their will here on earth. And Jesus says, it doesn't look like that. I know where you've gotten those ideas. He said, you've gotten those ideas from the world. You've gotten those ideas from the Gentiles. That's why he uses that example with the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they lord it over people. They just boss people around and tell them what to do but he says it's not so among you. Actually, what's used there is the present tense. This is is true of you right now, that any one of you who wants to be great, you must be a servant. If you're gonna be first, you must be a slave to all. 
totally antithetical to anything that this world would say or Jim Collins would write. Totally different. But this is the way of Jesus. It comes from descending to be great in God's eyes. And you go, where does he get that idea? He gets it from his own life because that's how he follows it up in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this idea of if you wanna be great, you must be a servant. If, if you wanna be first, you must be a slave to all. This is all coming from Jesus's own job description. Folks, Jesus going to the cross didn't surprise Jesus. Didn't surprise him. Jesus didn't ask the Father, why on earth do you have me here? He knew exactly why he came. And it was to be a servant for us, to be a servant of God, to be a servant for our salvation. That's why he gave his life. And he says, as a ransom, and that word ransom means to buy back, specifically out of slavery. So if somebody was indebted, they had a huge debt, they might, in, they might put themselves into slavery to pay for their debt. And then a relative would come along and they would pay that debt to redeem them out of slavery so that they could be free again. That's why Jesus came was to pay the price for our freedom because we were enslaved to sin. So when Jesus is encouraging his disciples, the ones who were upset and bickering with each other about who would be best, he says, listen, you need to be fighting not for who's gonna be first, but who's gonna be last. How many of those fights have you gotten in lately? Of no, I'm gonna serve. No, I'm gonna serve. We oftentimes don't get in those fights in our world. But if we're a true servant, just like Jesus was a true servant, then there's no act of service that's beneath a true servant. No act of service is beneath a true servant. Jesus gave his life. And yet, oftentimes in our own lives, in our everyday lives, we draw the line so many times about what we're, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. I just won't unload the dishwasher. I mean, as silly as that sounds, how many of us have drawn that line in the sand lately? I mean, certainly not me. I'll do anything, just not that. If we're a true servant, there's no service, no act below a true servant. It wasn't below Jesus, God incarnate, 100% God, 100% man. So let me ask, is there anything beneath you is there anything beneath you? I remember early on when I first came to, to work at Christ Chapel, uh, I was talking with our executive pastor, Bill Egner, who I admire tremendously. And he, we were talking about different things that we could do at the church and whatnot. And he said, Cody, I'm just happy to be here. I'd scrub toilets. And, and he genuinely meant, I mean, tears in his eyes. And, it, and that's trained me too. I love you. I love, a part of, I love being a part of what God does here at this church. I, I, I'll do it. I just, I, just wanted, I just want to serve him. I want to serve you. And I know you have those same hearts. And sometimes my heart gets selfish and it says, but I don't want to do that, God. And he goes, this is the way of the cross. 
You don't ascend to it, you descend. You descend through serving. So here's what I'd like us to do. I want you to descend into greatness in God's eyes. Not in this world's eyes, but in God's eyes. And here's where it starts. Accept Jesus' greatest act of service because you'll never be good enough. Accept Jesus' greatest act of service, which was giving his life for our sins, because you'll never be good enough. Remember when I told you Jim Collins' quote, good is the enemy of great? When it comes to salvation, good is absolutely the enemy of great. And here's why, especially for us in the Bible Belt. Because folks in the Bible Belt who grew up in a Christian home or grew up around good moral people, awesome, wonderful. But too often you say, Cody, I'm a good person. Yeah, you'll never be good enough. See, you're resting on all of those good works that you have, and I'm sure you are great people. You're really nice and kind and probably do wonderful things for your neighbors. But you'll never be good enough to meet the standard of a holy God. And he knew that, which is why he sent his son to ransom you from being enslaved to trying to be good enough. That's slavery, of going, I'm on the good, uh, uh, I'm 51% good, 49% bad. Okay, I'm gonna try to stay on this side. Guess what? It's gotta be 100%. You're never gonna be good enough. You can never pay for your sins yourself. That's why Jesus' greatest act of service was to come and give his life for you. You see, if you wanna be great in God's eyes, the first step is to descend in humility and admit that you're not good enough. That's okay. I know that grates against all of your pride. And you go, Cody, I, if I do that, I don't feel any self-worth. Are you kidding me? You're so valuable, so worth it, that he sent his son for you. How can you not feel wor worthy? Like You are valuable incredibly valuable. So humble yourself. Accept his greatest act of service because you'll never be good enough. Second, change your mindset about serving from reluctant obligation to willing devotion. Change your mindset about serving from reluctant obligation to willing devotion. So often when we look at service or even following Jesus, we look at it as a box to check. Now, let me, let me ask you, you can talk to experts in your field, talk to celebrity people, authors, celebrity athletes, it doesn't matter who it is. If you ask them, how did you become great, I can guarantee you that none of them would say, I checked the box. Nobody became great by checking the box. They became great by giving their lives to whatever subject that is, whatever pursuit that was. There was nothing that they weren't willing to sacrifice to pursue that. You see, the measure of your devotion is equal to the measure of your sacrifice. And if you're willing to sacrifice for God and descend into greatness, into humility and service, then you will be great in God's eyes and you will see great things in and around you. 
you won't get credit for it. And I'm okay with that. I think you're okay with that. But you don't get there by checking the box and go, man, I love God so much with all my heart because I checked the box today. It doesn't work like that. So we gotta change our mindset about serving from reluctant obligation to willing devotion because Jesus laid down his life willingly. And then finally, use your God-given means to serve God in God-glorifying ways. Use your God-given means to serve in God-glorifying ways. Everything you have is his. Everything that he has given you, your life, your breath, your personality, your resources, your relationships, all of those things he's given you because he wants you to use those to serve him and his kingdom. You are not here on earth to build your own kingdom. God is not your angel investor for you to build your own business here on earth. That's not why he put you here. He put you here to serve him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who does rule and reign, the one who will establish a new heavens and a new earth, the one who will make you great when you're glorified and you'll see great and amazing things. You see, God wants you to be great. It's just greatness in a totally different way than you've ever thought about it. See, if you wanna be good, in this world's eyes, then just don't cross the line. If you wanna be great in God's eyes, then take up your cross, serve him, and descend into greatness. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that there was no price you weren't willing to pay for us to come to know you, to be used to build your kingdom. I thank you that you gave us an example, that you didn't just say, go and give your life, go and sacrifice everything, but you gave us an example of yourself and everything that you gave Jesus, the Father gave back to you in spades. Lord, we wanna see you do great and mighty things Make it our ambition to make you great. And the way that we make you great is by being your greatest servants. We ask it in our greatest servant's name, Jesus, amen.